So let's talk about what's said for 2018. Donald Trump and Steve Bannon face off in a war of harsh words and accusations. The president said, Steve Bannon had nothing to do with me or my presidency. Is it really the end of Steve Bannon? This is clearly a divorce between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump, and I want to know who gets what. What happens this year could put the presidency on a path of peril. It'll be a fantastic 2018. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, 2018 has started, and why am I still surprised? I'm not. Donald Trump is sowing chaos and confusion. On Tuesday, he said on Twitter that his nuclear button is bigger than Kim Jong-un's. Always sighs with this guy. He also called for the Justice Department to jail Hillary Clinton's former top aide, Uma Abedin, and possibly former FBI Director James Comey. And he announced he'll be presenting, and I quote, the most dishonest and corrupt media awards. Well, soon. (laughs) I'm really hoping I get nominated. Again, that was Tuesday. On Wednesday, in response to his former campaign manager and chief strategist Steve Bannon using the word treasonous to describe the infamous 2016 Trump Tower meeting between Don Jr., Jared Kushner, and the Russians, President Trump released an angry Dear Steve letter. And again, I quote, Steve Bannon has nothing to do with me or my presidency. When he was fired, he not only lost his job, he lost his mind. Audience, you cannot see us here in the studio, but let me describe our faces. Jaw, floor. Now, is this comedy? Is this tragedy? Is this America? And why is it impossible to look away from this screaming, skidding car wreck called the government of the United States? Donald Trump knows how to start the new year, or should I say the new season of his reality show, that opening episode, oh, so important. And he started it with a bang. Heather, what does the historian have to say about the year just begun? Well, it's significant that it is a new year, I think. And the fact that you're looking at it like a new season is significant, not only to the president, who, of course, thinks in terms of TV, but also to America. In 2017, it seemed to me that people were against the ropes, not knowing what was going to happen. You know, things came at us from the very first week of the Trump presidency with the first travel ban. We were constantly reeling. And now people are organized. They're resisting. They've got plans. They've got uh, they're pushing back against this administration. And I think that the president is very aware of that. He's coming out swinging because he feels like he's on the ropes. He feels like he's in danger. He's panicking. And when he even has somebody like Steve Bannon coming down and breathing down his neck. He's nervous. And I think we are looking at a new America in 2018. And it's a new America that is not necessarily one that is going to get along terribly well with the current president. Yes, indeed. A new year, maybe a new America. And time to bring on our guest this week. Connor Friedersdorf is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a great one. He is overseeing a year-long retrospective on the 50th anniversary of that other big year, 1968. Certainly one of the most momentous years in U.S. history. And, so many argue, the year that made modern America. Connor, welcome. Thanks for having me. 
Connor, before we get into the importance of 1968, let's talk about Trump's opening salvo of 2018. Could be another seminal year, 68-like. First, what do you make of the public breakup, the acrimonious divorce between Bannon and Trump? It's quite a divorce. It is quite a divorce, and it's difficult to know what to make of it. It's difficult to know whether Steve Bannon represents a significant constituency in American life that is, say, uh, white nationalist, you might describe them that way, or uh, certainly economically and uh, politically isolationist. Or is Trumpism just inseparable from Trump himself? If Trump were to step down from office tomorrow or if he were to lose in 2020, is that the end of this moment and no one else without his celebrity could possibly put together his coalition again? And I don't know the answer to that. That's kind of the key question. Heather? Is this what we're looking at then is a potential disruption of the Trump coalition? I mean, Trump tries so hard to keep his base behind him, and yet his base was really formed largely out of places like Breitbart when um, Steve Bannon was running it before the election. So is this the moment where we're looking at a disintegration of that coalition? I I really think that it depends on a a few factors. One, is Trump's base going to divorce him if he doesn't do anything on immigration, if he doesn't build a wall, if he allows DACA people to stay in the United States? Uh, What's the relationship between immigration and Trump's popularity? Uh, Another big question is, are more traditional Republicans and conservatives going to rally around Trump if he keeps giving them most of what they want? So far, he's governed, at least in domestic policy, in a way that isn't so different from how, say, a Rick Perry might have governed or a Jeb Bush, not his rhetoric, but the actual, you know, signing a tax cut and that sort of thing. And so, uh, you know, will the typical National Review reader, say, uh, come around to Trump if he keeps speaking like a lunatic but governing like a member of the GOP establishment that he purports to hate? I mean, Connor, I guess a question is, is whether Trump, uh, despite his anger and his impulse, whether he's seen this as opportunity to jettison the Steve Bannon wing ostensibly of the party and to essentially consolidate gains, as you said, that might have been at the hand of a Rick Perry or a more traditional conservative, giving them what they wanted. Well, Steve Bannon has played his hand rather weakly, I think, by getting behind a Senate candidate that lost in Alabama and also having Breitbart associate with this challenger to Paul Ryan who started doing kind of alt-right podcasts and and making anti-Semitic comments. And so you could imagine a kind of different trajectory where Steve Bannon would have found uh, a little bit stronger candidates to run in a sort of Pat Buchananite fashion. So it's all muddied by the fact that Bannon picked the most deplorable, to use the kind of lingo of our time, candidates that he could possibly associate himself with, and even jettisoned, uh, Breitbart even jettisoned Paul Ryan's challenger eventually. What I can't say, the the question that seems most fascinating to me going forward is what becomes of Steve Bannon? Does he stay at Breitbart, uh, leading one of the most popular, if not the most trafficked website on the American right right now? He has certainly alienated the kind of National Review wing of movement conservatism. Now he's alienated Donald Trump. And uh, I'm fascinated to see what becomes of Breitbart in the next six months to a year and whether Bannon is still there and what his utility is to the site and to the, I think, 
uh, Breitbart's widow still owns a big piece of it. So I'm curious to see what happens going forward. Yeah, Andrew Breitbart died in 2012, and that Steve Bannon took over at that point. Prediction, Breitbart, is Bannon out? You know, I don't understand his utility to the site at this point. At the same time, uh, he definitely played this card very deliberately. You know, mm. speaking on the record for this book, he had to know how it was going to play out. And so maybe he knows something that we don't. Maybe he has leverage over Trump in some way that we don't understand. Uh, that's not much of a prediction, but it at least tells you why I'm not going to make one. Maybe leverage, but also maybe his moment is gone. I mean, he is not the first person to rise as the voice of a certain population and then to sink into oblivion as well. But I have a question for you, Connor. What is with the president's recent flurry of activity on Twitter? I mean, among other things, there was that nuclear button tweet. And you wrote that that tweet, the nuclear button tweet, as you said, Maybe the most irresponsible tweet in history. What do we do with that? Probably everyone who is on Twitter has at one time or another tweeted something and then thought, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should have waited a minute in hindsight. Maybe that thing that I tweeted yesterday was wrong. Trump's personality is particularly suited to doing that kind of thing. And he's the leader of the uh, leader of the free world. Uh, or at least the most powerful leader uh, among democratic countries is certainly the most powerful to have a nuclear weapon. And I've been kind of moving along to this conclusion that world leaders just ought not to be on Twitter. And it's this nuclear tweet that finally pushed me over the edge. And I wrote the piece that Twitter just ought to kick world leaders off. The danger of them saying something in this unvetted form off the top of their heads, it, it just seems like the costs are so much greater than any benefit to humanity of having them on there. They can get their message out in other ways. So why, do, why, does, uh, why doesn't Twitter just kick them all off? But isn't that an incredibly sad statement that you're saying that world leaders are not do not have enough self-control to be on a 140 or 280 character platform? Well, it's sad, but it's also, I think, pretty well grounded in history, right? You can look back in every country at different times has had irresponsible leaders who were corrupt and who stirred up the public in ways that were pretty ugly. And that isn't different in the present. It's not going to be different in the future. What is different is the immediacy of the technological medium and the kind of lowering of barriers between the president and reaching the public. Uh, Connor, what do you think this means for 2018? We're off to a racing start here in the first few days, but we've got a midterm election coming up. You know, for Republican candidates, they're kind of being forced to make a choice. Will they break against Trump? Will they go against Bannon? Will they say, I don't need Breitbart if in fact that's in play? Or or they going to be against both. Is Mitch McConnell secretly smiling as a kind of default go-to guy at this point? You know, I, I think that what happens with immigration in the very beginning of this year is going to dictate a lot of how the subsequent campaigns go. You have a lot of Democratic challengers. Uh, they're being pushed by their coalition to take a hard line against Trump. Uh, but is there going to be another big domestic policy fight that helps determine the shape of this election? Immigration seems to be the kind of thing you might expect to turn out Trump voters, if anything, is going to. It's, it seems to be the kind of thing that would put some Democrats in a difficult position, getting them crosswise of public opinion on something like sanctuary cities where their base is wanting them to take a position that's much farther left than the country as a whole. So I, I just really think it depends on what Congress does come January, February, what the domestic policy scene looks like. Connor, Heather, stand by. After the break, we'll talk about the lessons learned from 1968. 
Okay, we're back. As we try to catch our breath here to start 2018, let's look back at 1968, another year of tremendous uncertainty. It may have lessons for us today. Heather, let's frame that year for our listeners. Well, 1968 was a big enough year all over the Western world that universities teach entire courses just on that one year of 1968. When you think about America in that year, what you really think about is protests in the streets. At least that's what I think about. You think about protests around the country. You think about the civil rights protests around the country. You think about the protests against the Vietnam War. As the politicians plotted their strategy, over a thousand anti-war demonstrators marched peacefully across the street from the giant Conrad Hilton Hotel. The marchers, representing over 100 peace groups and a delegation of hippies, chanted anti-Johnson slogans. Following the hotel protest, thousands of hippies and marchers gathered in Lincoln Park. As a sound truck was moved into place, police collared a youth for blocking traffic. An angry crowd surged after the arresting officers. Clubs were swung and several persons were beaten to the ground. You think about uh, women's protests in 1968. My favorite story about 1968 is a myth, and that is that's when we get the myth that feminists burned their bras at the never burn the bras. They never burn the bras. There's wow. a, I, I feel like I saw pictures, but they didn't. And the idea was that feminists had shown up at the Miss America pageant in 1968 and burned their bras. Did not happen. But when you think about 68, that's one of the things that jumps out at you. Yeah, I'd like to find the person who came up with the phrase. That is symbolic messaging of the highest order. Look, look, it was also the year the Vietnam War was raging, exploding. In Southeast Asia, the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, the My Lai Massacre. You also had tragic assassinations in that year. In April, we get the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., April 4th of that year. And Robert Kennedy is assassinated in June of 1968. Broke America's heart. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today. Well, that's the important part for me in elections in American history. Everything that happened in 68 is around that election. The Democratic Party splits, of course. LBJ ends up dropping out of the race because he has supported the war in Vietnam. By the end of the year, of course, you've got Richard Nixon elected president because Nixon runs in 68 by doing what's called the Southern strategy, by saying that he's not going to screw around with with civil rights. He's going to have be a law and order candidate. He's going to stop all the riots. He's going to, you know, get rid of those nasty people in the streets who are causing such trouble. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. Connor, do we leave anything out? You're doing this interesting thing at The Atlantic where folks are opining, talking, thinking, reminiscing about 1968. Uh, So uh, when you see those four numbers, uh, what pops into your noggin? As far as big picture things, uh, the thing that I think most about is that 1968 was an authoritarian moment. And then here we are 50 years later having another one. And what I mean by that, last year, like a lot of journalists, like a lot of citizens, I did a little bit of reading on the literature on authoritarianism. I found one particular book really useful. It's called The Authoritarian Dynamic. It was written back in the early aughts by Karen Stenner. 
And she went through a bunch of different Western countries and tried to figure out what is it that causes people to veer toward authoritarianism? What takes countries that are seeming to be getting along uh, with one another relatively well and then suddenly turn to these moments of great divide where people who love difference and people who are kind of unnerved by difference are suddenly clashing and electing these authoritarian leaders. And through her scholarship, she found that there were two factors that predicted these kind of moments. And one was a loss of faith in leaders, a feeling that they were corrupt or inept. Another one was the feeling that the opinions of your fellow citizens are just very at odds with one another, that there's tremendous diversity of opinion and tremendous clash of values instead of shared values. And it's easy to see how people would come to that conclusion in 1968. Uh, and again, 50 years later, almost 50 years later in 2016 and 2017, different moments in many ways, but both moments when you had the idea that elites were corrupt or lying to the public. You had people taking to the streets in these huge displays of what some thought were righteous protests against injustice and others saw as disorder that was tearing the country apart. And so uh, I think big picture, when I think of 1968, I think that was one of the last authoritarian moments in America, skipping ahead till now. And what do people get when you think about it, from the authoritarian, from that whole idea of the strong man, mostly at this point, that is so appealing to them and, and is what helps the authoritarian idea rise. What are they getting from the authoritarian? What they're looking for is someone to reinforce the idea of sameness and unity. That's what they're looking for. They don't like divergence. They don't like diversity in, in any respect. And they want someone to come and if it takes coercion to force people to all get on the same track and make America great again or have law and order, then so be it. They are okay with cracking some heads together in order to have that sameness and unity that they crave because, as Stenner would put it, there is just a certain number of people in every society that are uncomfortable with diversity and difference and living in a pluralistic democracy at moments of great tumult is very difficult for them. Damn it, someone make a decision and everyone follow. Heather? So, Connor, let me push back against you on that, though, because I could do that, too. I could play out for you all the similarities between the present and 1968. But I would also suggest that there's a different lens to look at this with, and it is this. 1968 came after World War II. And 1968, if you're looking for a direct parallel, actually looks a great deal like Reconstruction. After the Civil War and after World War II, what happens is both African Americans and women, and other minority groups as well, but primarily African Americans and women, demand to be included in a society for which they have quite literally fought and and shed blood and died, as well as put money into. And when the, the country begins to open up and give rights to women and, and African Americans after the Civil War and after World War II, what you get is, first of all, um, a very prosperous period in which you tend to have more rights. But then you have this backlash. And 68 really, in many ways, looks like the backlash to Reconstruction. But if you move forward in Reconstruction in that era, in the late 19th century, you get an incredibly violent, divided, dangerous period 
after Reconstruction, when you get the rise of a people with a lot of money who are trying to sort of amass control over the entire country. And then you get a very different kind of pushback against them. And it's a pushback that tends to be very broad-based, and it tends to result not in an authoritarian, but rather in the rise of progressive government. And if you look at the parallels that way from the late 19th century and the late 20th century, it almost looks like we're looking in a sort of a period of tumult that's going to give us the progressive era as opposed to the rise of an authoritarian. Will you give me that one or will you want to push back against that? I I mean, it seems to me that there is a pretty significant overlap between some progressives and authoritarians. I think of Woodrow Wilson, you know, someone who uh, resegregated the federal workforce and had some of the biggest civil liberties abrogations um, during World War II that the United States had seen uh, in a generation. Uh, but was also a ideological progressive and and did a lot of things that progressives to this day would celebrate. So I, I don't know that progressivism and authoritarianism are as neatly divided uh, as you suggested. That's a good point. You know, maybe the answer is that a progressive authoritarian is exactly what you end up with, is somebody who uses their authoritarian power in ways that we as historians tend to look at as being progressive. And that is something you could see coming out of this current moment. You know, often people talk about uh, uh, demography, demographics uh, being destiny with these giant pig-in-the-python generations coming through and and defining things once they get their hands on the lever or one generation essentially hands the controls over to another, often reluctantly. Uh, and are we seeing some of that here? I mean, we, we've got this generational comparison, which you've talked about, 68, the baby boomers are coming of age. Now it's the millennials, as the baby boomers maybe are passing the torch. Uh, is this part of the the upheaval that occurs, especially when you have two vast generations in a kind of a conflict and a passage of the reins of power? I certainly think that's possible. I mean, one thing that's very interesting to me right now is you have the baby boomer generation that we traditionally think of as the generation of the rebellions of the 60s, right? Um, And now here they are, one of the older cohorts in American history and still a generationally large cohort. And some of them are voting like older voters traditionally have and rallying around kind of law and order candidates. And so it's been interesting to see. I wonder how the baby boomers will be thought of 25 years from now when we think back on their younger years and their older years, if if their older years will change the kind of generational stereotypes we have about them. I think one of the interesting things, Connor, 68 to now is, is it a surprise many folks who were on campuses demonstrating and lots of the young progressives in college of that era, something that surprised many of them in 1968 was a view that they were young America and they were told otherwise by all the young people who voted for Richard Nixon says, no, we're not part of of those noisy uh, and culturally shaping demonstrators and other folks on the coastlines, frankly, uh, that were getting all the ink as my, 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 my generation. Instead, they voted like their parents, many of them, and they voted for Richard Nixon. Uh, I wonder if we're we're looking at some divides here that may not be properly assessed as to who's supporting Donald Trump and who's supporting this powerful movement uh, toward law and order, toward the right, uh, toward maybe authoritarianism. 
Well, I think one actual one big difference between 1968 and now is just the relationship of generations to one another. I don't think that there is the same generational divide as we saw then. I, one fascinating thing to think about is, you know, 20 years from now, I'm still, as someone who was born in 1980, I'm still going to be consuming the pop culture of 1968. I'm sure that I will be listening to the Beatles and the Rolling Stones until I die. I'm sure that I will see the movie The Graduate, which I like a lot, several more times in life. And it wasn't the case that my parents in 1968 were consuming pop culture movies, music that was made in 1918. It's just a totally different relationship uh, across generations. And, and I think it's much easier in some ways for me to understand the tumult of 1968, maybe partly because of technology, partly because it's recorded, because uh, I'm still listening to it. Uh, I wonder if it's only that or if there's more to it. So, Connor, I have another question for you. The one thing we have not talked about is what happened at the DNC in 1968, which was riots and all kinds of craziness that happened when protesters tried to take over the Democratic Party. And one of the things that you can see happening in 1968 is people on the right really organizing at a grassroots level and taking over the levers of political power. And one of the things that seems to me that I have seen in 2017 is that happening on the left, really for the first time in my life. Lifetime, where people are looking at at how to move politics, and they are organizing at a grassroots level in the Democratic Party, is that a legitimate way? You th- do you think to look at this crazy moment today in American history, where Trump's craziness has sort of pulled the Republican Party apart? All that careful organizing, the direct mail campaigns, the grassroots taking over school boards, all the things that the right started in 1964 and then took off with in 1968. Trump is sort of ripped apart in this moment, perhaps now even especially with his attack on Bannon. And the left seems to be picking it up. The Democrats seem to be picking it up. Is that too broad a brush statement, do you think, or does that work? 2018 is, in some ways, the easier task for Democrats because they can organize at the local level, and they are organizing at the local level, fielding candidates in all sorts of places, You know, making connections at the Women's March and the post-inauguration marches that are going to facilitate future activism. And I think you're going to see a lot of Democratic pickup in the 2018 midterms. Uh, the question then is what happens in 2020? Is there a divide that is going to become evident when they have to settle on one nominee? Because I think there are pretty sharp differences in what different parts of the left want. Or are they going to be able to rally around someone? And, and maybe that's largely a question of whether a charismatic person like a Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama comes along or not. Well, let's do a little thought experiment. Uh, in 68, our current president, Donald Trump, turned 22. He had avoided the Vietnam War by going to college. He was working at his father's real estate company. He partied. He had a, he had a limo. Did Donald Trump experience the same 1968 as the rest of us? And what does that mean for today in terms of that seminal year still being within living memory? Uh, Heather, where were you in 1968? I was six years old in 1968. And you had a limo? No one? <laughs> you know, my driver used to take me uh, to I kindergarten. Bet, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have a limo. I did not have a driver. Well, I did have a driver. It was my mother. Um, <laughs> uh, it, 
You know, I lived in a family where we were very conscious of what was happening in the news. And we lived in Chicago at the time. So the DNC, the, the craziness of the DNC was very much a part of our lives. It's actually what inspired my father to pick up stakes and move to Maine to get out of the craziness that was around him. But I think that, that there was at the time, at least when I was growing up, a sense of enormous possibility and fairness and new ideas coming up. I mean, when I think of my my youth, there was great – first of all, there was great music. And there were, there were great books and there were people living on the land and there were people trying new things and there were all kinds of new foods and there were new languages. And it was a very exciting time in many ways. Despite the rioting, in fact, it was only when I became a teacher and started teaching 1968 that I looked at the clips from the news, which I had watched as a kid, but they seemed somehow not to be as associated with me, the violence and the danger, as the excitement was. And that's something that I suspect if you were living in a limo and worried about the mobs, especially mobs of color in you know, Detroit or Watts in 65, you didn't react the same way to. I'll do my turn in a second. Connor, though, I want to go to you first. 1968, uh, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassinated. The country is torn to shreds. What parts of those events echo most powerfully for you? You're a guy who has clearly lived looking forward and backward. I mean, you you have an attentiveness in 1968, which may not be shared by everyone of your generation. When you think of Kennedy and King, what do you feel in your gut? You know, I, I would say for most of my life, when I thought of MLK being shot, RFK being shot, or, or when I thought of other events of the 60s, like the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was unable to imagine or, or really feel what it was like to live in a country with that kind of anxiety and tumult. And I, I don't think that the rise of Trump is has quite put me on the same level. At the same time, I have felt for the first time in my life a level of instability, unpredictability, a feeling that the country is divided in a way that I've never felt before. And so I think, although I wouldn't say the experiences are equivalent, uh, I, I think that I can maybe understand the period and what people were feeling then or at least empathize with it a little bit more fully now than I could have five or ten years ago. Well, you know, I um, I became politically active as a nine-year-old in 1968. I, I can say that with real surety uh, because I did feel that tumult. You know, I really didn't have much acuity or awareness uh, as to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. But certainly that year, I was aware as a nine-year-old, aware that uh, politics matters. You know, my, um, my parents were away in Mexico the night King was assassinated. They're actually flying back through Philadelphia. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. And my brother and I were there with the babysitter um, sitting in front of the fish tank, which calmed us down, uh, and wondering if my mom and dad would be able to get back. Philadelphia was aflame. Other cities were on fire. And I think um, the tumult uh, resonated deeply in my little body. And the next thing you know, I was out on an island 
in my uh, neighborhood, a suburb, you know, a traffic island there where cars pass going out to a highway, holding up a Hubert Humphrey sign. <laughs> and I did my first presidential <laughs> imitation, I believe. I, I did Nixon. Uh, and I've been doing presidential imitations for years and ended up covering presidents as my profession. And I think it comes down to this idea that this stuff matters. I, I will throw something back at you, though, Connor. One of the things that jumps out at me about this conversation is that I did not mention that my oldest son is named for Bobby Kennedy. He's Robert Francis as well. <laughs> and in this moment, you know, we see so much negativity. And yet I can see people in 20 years being named for Bree Newsom, who took down the, the flag over the South Carolina State House. I certainly can see lots and lots of Heathers from Heather Heyer. I can see Maisha's from Maisha Johnson. You know, it seems to me that there are things that people will hold on to here positively as well. Is that fair? And if so, who would you name? You know, uh, my one hope that I have is that you know, 20 years from now, we see a decrease in the number of police killings that is as dramatic and unexpected as the reduction in murders that we've seen in years past, something that was once unthinkable and, and that we solve. And there are, of course, other countries in the world that already have orders of magnitude fewer police killings. And so I would like to think that we look back on someone like DeRay McKesson and, and point to him as one of the people that helped to make that happen. Um, I, I would also say that... One thing I've enjoyed just at the beginnings of this project of delving back into 1968 is seeing these little things that no one would have made anything of at the time. You know, 60 Minutes debuted in 1968. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood debuted in 1968. Uh, these huge shows that in different ways shaped, uh, you know, adults in one case and probably kids in the other case, but it really shaped a generation in, I would argue, very constructive ways. And no one had any idea at that moment uh, when they began that they would be so influential in a positive way. And so surely there are things that are starting right now that we're going to feel the same way about. And that's heartening. Maybe we'll we'll look back on this uh, podcast 20 years from now, Connor, and say all those <laughs> little things we mentioned, <laughs> what effect they had. Uh, Connor Friedersdorf, a staff writer for The Atlantic, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Heather, always wonderful to chat. It's always a pleasure, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. and this is Freak Out and Carry On. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakoutandcarryon at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.